The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Not the doctor and the therapist, they were in the back, they weren't allowed to speak to the people who were suffering mental health issues. I remember afterwards this woman, middle-aged woman, she came in, uh, came to see me after I finished the talk and said, I want to apologise to you, Ajahn Brahm. So why do you want to apologise? It's because when I saw you come in, you know, a monk, I'm not Buddhist, with bald head and a silly brown robe, I told my friend, please excuse the language, but this is what the lady said, who is this wanker coming in to teach us? The wanker is a really bad word in English. You know what it means? Okay. <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> so then he was this wanker coming in to teach us. And he said, but afterwards, he said, you made me laugh. You made me cry. And what you said made so much sense to me. I want to apologize about the word I said about you to my friend. I said, why did you laugh and why did you cry? I said, the first thing which I said, and I think I mentioned this earlier, on the idea of the, um, the trees in the forest. It's an old story, but it's one of the most beautiful. All the trees in the forest are bent and twisted. Please notice that. There's no one perfect tree in New Buddhist Monastery. And then the whole Blackwood Forest. All bent, crooked, working. Yeah. It's all bent, crooked, like computers. Now, can you ever get a perfect computer which always does the right thing? No way. Can you ever get a perfect person who can run that computer and never makes mistakes? No way. So never feel sort of ashamed or embarrassed when the computer goes wrong. This is what computers do for everybody. Just like human beings, there's no such thing as a perfect tree. I say, so I say, all of you clients over here, you're all bent, twisted, damaged goods, all of you. The first thing I want you to know, if you're twisted and damaged goods, you're not perfect. Please know that you're welcome. Don't stigmatize yourself or reject yourself or think you have to cure something in order for you to belong. Every crooked, twisted tree belongs in the forest. You're part of the forest. It's part of the nature of trees to be that way. It's part of the nature of computers always to go off, to crash or whatever. And so first of all, you're part of things. Don't feel that you're an outsider that you are rejected, stigmatized, you belong. And that meant so much to people. You realize that you do belong. You don't have to have the stress inside of you, trying to fit in, trying to straighten yourself up, trying to get rid of all your faults. You belong, you're okay. And not only that, because these were people with quite severe, so-called emotional problems. I don't like calling them problems. I might say about strong emotional differences, not the same as others. But I said, I know you're not the same as others. No one is, not even me. But I said, the more that you are weird, the more beautiful you are. You belong more. The more twisted and bent those trees are, the more I like to sit next to them. They're the gorgeous ones. Your character. If I want to photograph them, that's the one I want to be photographed with. So this is actually embracing, expanding what you find acceptable in this life. Instead of always thinking this is the way we have to be, this is the way the politicians have to be, this is the way that husbands have to be, this is the way how monks should be, how nuns should be. When you actually accept the diversity and there's so, so many kind and beautiful nuns through the window over there. So many kind of beautiful people. And other people can't recognize their beauty. They may be, say, schizophrenic, or they may have ADHD. They may, a place which I really know this from, uh, was from Down syndrome people. And this was years ago, in 90s, 
story behind this in 1970. That one of my friends, there weren't that many Buddhists who were uh, in Cambridge University. So one of my friends was a Christian. He was a good man. But then we had great discussions, as you know, young people do, I was only about 19 at the time, about life and how to live it. And he said he was a Christian and he was going with his friends who volunteered to do social work in Fulboy Hospital in the um, Down Syndrome ward. He never invited me to join him, but I felt very embarrassed. I was a Buddhist. I was doing nothing. And I thought, very embarrassed. I'm not going to let the Buddhists down. I'm a Buddhist. I'm as good as you Christians. So I demanded to go along as well to look after um, Down syndrome people. And I thought I was doing this as a social service. But of course, I was totally wrong. My Christian friends only went there for two weeks. I went there for two years. I looked forward to it every, I think Tuesday, no, Thursday afternoon, I forget now. Every, I was a student, okay, and I had lots of work to do, but this was more important for me. That Thursday afternoon, I went to Fulbright Hospital. And I got to know all the, the inmates. In those days, they would institutionalize people with Down syndrome. But then, you know, I thought I was helping them. I looked down upon them when I first went there. That didn't last very long. After a while, I found out just how amazing these people were. And one example, which I often remember, I just walked in there once, and this one of the Down syndrome men came running towards me. And he gave me this big hug. I was a man, and being hugged by another man, even in a, in, in a hospital for those mentally disturbed, was very embarrassing for me. I said, why are you hugging me? He said, what happened? To me. So what do you mean what happened to me? There's something wrong with you. And I couldn't believe that this Down syndrome person guessed it straight away. I'd broken up with my girlfriend the night before. And he saw it straight away. How the heck did you see that? And it showed me that his emotional intelligence was way above mine at the time. And little by little, I said it again, sorry. <laughs> that I learned from those people with Down syndrome about emotional intelligence. In Cambridge University, I could learn about physics, quantum physics, the nature of the galaxy, and just how this galaxy works. But what I was impressed with was how the mind works, how the heart works. And I learned most of that from these people who had and Down syndrome. They were rejected by others, but straight away you saw incredible wisdom inside of them. Fortunately, things have changed these days. People with Down syndrome are much more integrated in society. They're welcomed, and their good qualities are just embraced, as they obviously should be. It took me a long time to learn that. Once you did learn it, for two years I was there every afternoon when I was at university. And I loved going there to the point that when it came to um, one afternoon, and I was so skilled looking after them, they gave me one group of kids for the first session in, in the afternoon. And we'd always stop for a cup of tea. It was in England. And after the cup of tea, then they gave me the other group to look after. I was supposed to be smart, but I was dumb because I didn't realize what they were up to. And what they were up to in that first session, I was teaching one group. The other group were making these cards and gifts for me, the longest volunteer in their units ever. And then when we swapped over, they kept it, kept it such a secret. And then the other half I was teaching and the other half they're doing their cards and gifts for me. And at the end of the session, they said, please come in, we've got something surprise for you. And they presented me with all these gifts and cards. All these people I learned to know their names and be kind to learn about them and were friends to them and love them for two years. And they said, we realize you're going to be doing your final exams next week. So we're taking the opportunity to say thank you to you 
for the last time you're coming here. And of course I cried. It was emotional. These were from people I really trusted. These weren't taking advantage of me at all. And then I said to them, actually you've got it wrong. My final exams are not until another 10 days. Next week I'm free. Can I please come again next week? <laughs> so I came back one more time. But I always remember that because I didn't give much. I said to the people who had Down syndrome, they gave me back so much more. And that really taught me a lot. Don't judge people. I don't know who, what they think they are, but I see something much more deep in them. The humanity, the kindness, the wisdom. And when you touch their hearts, they touch your hearts. And it's a very beautiful relationship you have. Be kind to people. That's why I love giving. Giving whatever I have and caring as much as I possibly can for others. That's why I'm here. I don't need to be in Yubi Buddhist monastery right now. I'm 70 years of age, 71 this year. I should retire. I'm a monk. I have plenty of duties back in Perth. More than enough things I could, I could do. I don't do always work more than just 40 hour weeks. More like, it feels like sometimes more like 40 hour days. But nevertheless, you get so inspired, you get energy up. So that's what runs me. And that's what allows me to give to others. It's a privilege to serve you. I say that with honesty and integrity. I enjoy coming here and just seeing how the Buddhist Society of Victoria, when I first came, they were still in Richmond very small little accommodation and moving from there over to uh, over to East Morven and moving from there up to not up to here how we've grown over these years and I don't know why I should be excited about this because we've done the same over in Perth we've got so many I call them franchises now Quite a few monasteries over there. Monasteries for women as well. That really just gives me so much inspiration. Just about a year ago, uh, the last range retreat, I was invited over to Dhammasara Monastery where the nuns are. It was actually doing a, a nun ordination there, bikini ordination, four of them. There's one or two of them over here. But anyway, when I did that ordination, I just went there because it had to. And I thought, about, okay, another thing to do. When I went over there, did the ordination, I was just emotional. The reason was because this ordination was conducted by Ayahasapanya, one of those first four nuns, which I helped with the ordination of. And now she was a preceptor herself. It's just like, if any of you are ever mothers or fathers, and you see your kid grow up, see your kid graduate, it's emotional there. And this is somebody you've cared for for a long time, you sacrificed for. And now they're just, they grow and mature, they're doing good things in the world. When I saw that with Aya Hasapanya, the four new nuns who were going that day, it was like, you know, she'd grown up now. Now she was like a leader in her own right. And how beautiful that was. So these are the sorts of things, the emotional rewards which you get from being a Buddhist monk. Buddhist monk, helping, healing, and allowing things to grow. And I get kind of addicted to that. Addicted to inspiration. And seeing just the results of all the lovely things you've done in your life. I haven't earned any money. I've done a huge amount of karma. <laughs> Great good karma. And that's sometimes one of, one of the reasons why you give blessings to people and it works. There's a great store of energy inside of you. And that's why when you start building monasteries, you know it's going to happen. Like even today, I'm not quite sure how much was raised. It's much more than probably the committee ever expected. How come that happens all the time? There's some real power behind this. The power of truth, the power of inspiration. You may read about that in the books and you think, oh, that's just old time stuff. 
and that's modern time stuff as well. Gorgeous stuff about walking under the moon on wayside night, three times around a shrine. And what do that for? Inspiration. It really moves you. It gets great energy that's up inside of you. Why do you fly all this way and just give basically talk from three o'clock till I don't know, five thirty below what time we're supposed to finish? How can you do that without getting tired? And run on inspiration on other stuff inside of you. And that really just shows other people that these talks are not just something that's made up. They're speaking for an example, speaking of an experience. And that experience, I've been very fortunate to have lots of those experiences and just how wonderful they are. And just, just how the meditation, as I mentioned this afternoon, how simple it is to meditate. Just learn how to let go and be peaceful. You try and meditate too much. You try too much. You know, just sitting here and relaxing to, to relax. What can be more easy than to relax? You feel safe. You don't need to hold your body tight. My body strains up by itself sometimes. Now, a lot of time you start meditating and you're a bit tired, you've been working hard. So it starts bending forward. I let it bend forward. And then it stands up by itself. Now, in one of the Buddha's teachings, about the, one of the times the Buddha smiled, and he saw two monks. The first monk was sitting on the edge of the forest, perfect posture. The right hand on top of the left hand, thumb slightly touching, just straight back, the head tucked, uh, the chin tucked in, perfectly peaceful and beautiful posture. And then he said to Ananda, who was with, I'm worried about that monk. And sure enough, that monk soon disrobed. But then the same day, he went deeper into the forest and saw another monk sitting in the middle of the forest, nodding all over the place. Real tough, sloth and torpor. And then that was the time he smiled. He smiled to his attendant, Ananda, and said, I'm not worried about him. And soon that monk became fully enlightened. And then when I first heard that, maybe you maybe first heard that, what the heck's going on? The one monk there, perfect posture, the other monk was just really slotting to all over the place. I'd acted out a bit better, but I don't want to hit this one. And why? It's because that first monk who was holding himself very tight, he was trying to keep that good posture. That's why it wasn't working for him. Too much ego and self in there. The second one was letting go. He wasn't embarrassed. In fact, he was sloth and talk in front of his teacher, even. He was letting go. And then put a mirror, curl like that, and just soon break through and take enlightenment. And that reminded me of I didn't bring my bowl this time. To get it on the aircraft is sometimes difficult. So I usually borrow a bowl from the stores here when I come here. But the bowl which I have over in Perth, that was given to me by a French monk. Uh, he ordained me one year after me. I've had that bowl for about 44 years, 45 years, this bowl which I use now. But I always keep it because it was given to me by this monk, and this monk looked like a perfect monk. We would sit up once every week uh, throughout the night, on the moon nights. And he would always sit up all night, and he was always, he would never nod. He was always perfect posture. And even in the morning at three o'clock, we would get up. Perfect posture all the time. And we all thought at the time, this French monk is so close to being enlightened. And then he disrobed. I couldn't believe it. This monk, his name was Chinawaro. He disrobed, how come? And then he actually started letting us know what was going on in his mind. He said every time he was meditating, he thought he cannot sort of um, let go and relax and fall asleep when he was meditating. He had such a strong ego, really trying hard to impress other people. And he's told me afterwards that sometimes I open my eyes and I look at you, I joke, well, 
You were nodding all over the place. And I was so jealous. I said, how do you do that? How can you do that, Ajahn Mahan? Because he was so concerned, such a control freak. He'd always keep his body really tight. And that was too much torture for him. And that's why he disrobed. That's for me, I never disrobed. Never will. Well, might fall off, but I'll never take it off on purpose. Except when I go in the shower. But what is really impressive for me is actually to know just the way he was practicing. He never got any peace, any deep meditation. After a while, he just gave up. So for each one of you, if you want deep meditation, it's easy. As long as you've got no ego. Let go of your sense of self. You're not trying to prove this to other people. You're letting go of things. That's why one of the other little things to finish off here, and let you ask some questions. So often, people actually ask me, Ajahn Brahm, are you enlightened? Ajahn Brahm, you talk about jhanas. Can you get into jhanas? Now, there's a rule, it's the eighth partitia, it's so frustrating. I'm not allowed to give an answer to those questions. Even if it's a true answer, it's against the rules. You're supposed to keep your own personal stuff secret, unless you talk to other monks about it. But then once there was on a video, a TV video in Sri Lanka, it's a group of monks. One of the monks asked me, he said, I don't know, I was just monks listening to this, so you can answer truthfully. You can't use that excuse you're not allowed to say because of the denier. He teaches jhanas all this last few days. Ajahn Brahm, can you enter jhana? He asked me that question. You put me on the spot. So I wanted to get an answer which I could repeat to lay people as well. So the answer is, if you haven't heard this before, I told people, Ajahn Brahm cannot into jhana. And then a few people, they looked at me and said, for you teach jhana to all other people, you encourage it, you can't enter it yourself. But the reason I said that because I wanted to let people know how to enter the jhana. That Ajahn Brahm has to disappear first. When I vanish, my sense of self and ego vanish, and the jhanas are easy. That's how you get into jhanas. That's your brother coming to me. I have to disappear first to let go, to renounce. So I take my responsibility for it. They're not personal attainments. It's what happens when I stop doing things. When I stop doing things, then I kind of disappear. When that is prepared, the most beautiful states happen. That teaches me the Dhamma, the deep Dhamma, and the bliss which happens when you get out of the way. Get out of the way big time. See, that's why I say how easy it is to do when you let go of you. So, that's actually how to answer these questions in a very beautiful, deep way, which allows other people to understand you don't worship so someone like an Ajahn Brahm, because Ajahn Brahm can't do anything, it's just a name. That's not who I am. But when you disappear and vanish, it's amazing what can occur. They're very deep inside. It's called in part in the Raka, the vanishing. And you let go of things disappear, and then you're older, they cease. And that cessation, that one of some things disappear, that's called the jhanas. So often I say, if ever you have a nice meditation, don't be so concerned about what's there. It's afterwards when you come out, ask yourself what was missing, what disappeared, or wasn't there anymore. That's more important how much goes, vanishes, how much you let go of. Looking at this down in a different way, but a beautiful way, in a very true way. I got that from Ajahn Shah about you meditate to let go of things, not to attain things. 
We keep repeating that all the time. But I was so dumb. I didn't really understand its importance. Meditate to let go, not to attain. So, any questions you have about what I said? Anyone wants to ask any questions? I think we have live streaming as well. There's no questions on that. Not yet. Yes, <laughs> okay. So, any comments? Does that make any sense to you? I started in a small way and went into the deep stuff after the end. That's usually the best way to give a talk. You talk about ordinary stuff, about feeling safe, and about not being an agile problem anyway, and then you keep going on on that until you get with the deepest part of the Dharma. And how beautiful this Dharma is. This Dharma is compared to everybody. So do you feel safe in the Buddhist society of Victoria? If you don't, please let somebody know so you'll feel that you're welcome. You're not abused or exploited in any which way. Even myself, I'm not abused or I'm not exploited. I really make it extra time for whatever I'm asked to do. Did you have a question coming up there? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask when we don't have enough money and our job not good enough, I mean, kind of like love, or maybe our status not good, we feel miserable usually. How to not feel miserable? Okay, compare yourself to me. I don't know how much money you've got. You've got more than I've got. I don't have any money at all. My job, pretty miserable job, I work such extreme hours for no pay. So it's not the money that makes you miserable, it's when you compare yourself to other people it makes you miserable. But don't compare yourself to others, maybe to me, maybe. You find, well, look, there's a monk who doesn't have any money at all. But still, like last week, they put me up in a hotel in Singapore where I was teaching a retreat. A Sentosa Cove W Hotel. As soon as I told people I'm going there, I said, wow, that's where all the rich people stay. And it was a five-star hotel. So it's an amazing hotel. But for a mark, I don't know why they call it a five-star. It was a pretty, uh, it was clean. It was, but a bed is just a bed. A shower is just a shower. A toilet is a toilet. I just wanted a toilet I could sit on and do my stuff. And you call it a five-star toilet. Sometimes there's so many buttons on it, you don't know what to do. <laughs> and all the other stuff which you're on. It's a five-star hotel. The breakfast was terrible. Only because you didn't have any choice of tea. And as an English monk, it's not a nice cup of tea. I don't like the hotel. Sri Lankan people, really English people, would not like that at all. It didn't have any choice. It was just all this scented tea. But that's apparently that's what high-class people like, you know, just fancy stuff. Not just like ordinary stuff. So that's one of the reasons why. How can you say this is five star? For me, it was just maybe one star or two star. This is a much better hotel here in Newbury Buddhist Monastery in Ajahn Brahm's Kuti. They call it Ajahn Brahm's Kuti, but Ajahn Desama stays there most of the time. It's pretty comfortable. You get some nice, I've had some very lucky tea with since I've been here. So I give this more stars than the W Hotel in St. Posa Cove, Singapore. So how can you compare things? Don't get into that. You have some money. Are you going to have to pay bills? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that the jobs cannot level up. And money, it's, I think, yeah, no, better, but sometimes, Setting, sometimes can setting. So, you, you know, unstable, unstable. Unstable, yeah. Welcome to life. Because life is always unstable. I don't think that somehow you got bad luck and it's worse for you. Because you know, sometimes I know people, they have really big jobs 
And then they lost those jobs. They got fired or something, or the company went broke. So as for you, just if you can learn, like a, a Buddhist monk, learn how to live simply. You don't need that much money to survive in this world, honestly. If you try and have a big house like other people, a nice big car, nice clothes, and eat fancy food, then that is expensive. But if you can learn how to you know, make your own food, if at all possible, it's very cheap. And maybe just you don't need a car, maybe you can get a lift from people to come here, or use public transport, which is quite cheap. Obviously, coming here is difficult. And learning fancy clothes, just simple clothes is the best. And even these days, I've noticed that so many white women have got holes in their jeans. I haven't seen that much over here in, in Melbourne. I think that's because it's so cold. <laughs> but in other places, I remember I had holes in my jeans when I was uh, 17 or 18. That was because I was poor. And my mother was always telling me off, get some proper jeans, I'll buy you some proper jeans. Because the old one has holes in them. And well, I don't want to waste money, they're still good enough to use. Well, I was a fashion ahead of my time. <laughs> but anyway, so these days, you don't need to have um, fancy jeans to wear as a girl or as a boy or whatever, just wear simple stuff. You find that you can save a lot of money when you know how to be frugal. And you're not measured by how much money you have. You're measured about how kind you are, how peaceful you are. That's more important than being rich. I know, or I have known, I do know, many people who are very wealthy, and they're pains in the butt. Because you know, sometimes, because they're wealthy, everybody, like, um, they don't sort of suck up to them, but they always, um, they want something from them. And they have huge houses, but they can't live with other people. That's so sad, you don't have friends. You'd rather be rich, or have lots of friends. Don't say both. <laughs> Anyway, why materialistic life is bad? Why? Okay, yeah, materialistic life, because that's all you're thinking about. What is the purpose of money? And Ajahn Chah told his prediction some years ago in one of his talks. He said, in the future, people will run out of paper to print banknotes and run out of metal for coins. We have to have something else to use for money. So he said they'd probably use pellets of chicken shit. And what chicken does? A piece of dung. And when you go to work, they'll pay you in chicken shit. And you want an increase in your amount of chicken shit you get because you work harder than the others. And the CEO would get more chicken shit than anybody. And then you take it to the bank and deposit it in the banks. You know, see how much chicken shit you've got today. And the IMF will become the International Manure Fund. <laughs> you know, well, what is money anyway? It's just a value given, these pieces of paper, a value given, these, these bits of metal. We've got no intrinsic value, but just what we give to it, so we can give that value to pieces of chicken shit instead. That's what Ajahn Chai used to say. And people will be so proud of how much chicken shit they've got in the bank. I got more chicken shit than you have. No, 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 no. But it's just the value we put on it. We put way too much value on money. Basically, I don't understand it. Now, if people want to build a nice retreat center, just build it. Unfortunately, we have to go through all these hoops, putting money in the bank, it goes into the bank and it goes to the builder. They never actually last in the Buddhist society of Victoria. It's also very, very amateur and permanent. People say, well, you should keep some money in the bank in the future for, for, for use in case of emergencies. No, don't do that. If there's any emergencies, it's your friends who will help you look after you. 
no wonder the monarchs was asking me today that in Singapore, you go to Singapore, you need to get insurance. I never have insurance. And the reason why is that because I've done so much good karma in Singapore, I know that if I get sick, or if I break a leg, there'll be so many doctors fighting to look after me. You've got carpet last time, it's my turn now. They really, really enjoy me getting sick, so they can help me. That's one of my, I apologize for that. I'm sorry to all the people in Newbury. I don't get sick enough. So yeah, I don't, you don't look after me because I don't need it. But that's what happens. My insurance is a good karma I've done in the past. That's the same with the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Same with the City Center Group. You've done such good service in the past. Helping out today. You've made such good karma. That's your insurance for the future. Not monetary, but kindness. I don't know how many stories I can say on this one, but there's heaps of them. Just even uh, recently, one of the, the bikunis over in Perth, you know, she had a lot of things wrong with her body, but one of the things she found was a hernia. And so, how can she get, go to a, a doctor? He had to wait for a long time. Now, because of the, the COVID epidemic, not many people can go to work and they're mostly focusing on people with, with fevers and stuff. So she was really concerned about getting someone who could really do a good job, but do it quickly, because the range retreat is coming up. I just asked a few people, so that I can imagine, you know anybody who can do these sorts of operations? And he sort of rang around a bit. He told me on the way that day, he found these a couple of doctors who are very happy to do this operation straight away for free, no money. And so the nun was just so happy that we could find somebody, just not an ordinary doctor, who could look after this pretty quickly, just for good karma. Thank you so much. One of the other monks I knew, he had his bad tummy and he needed to get a colonoscopy. I think I've got it right now, the colonoscopy one. And so, and again, you wait for the public system, that takes a long time. And so, I knew this uh, gentleman, a Sri Lankan doctor, I really helped when he was young. And so, uh, the monk called him up, his name was Sumaita Galahinaki, and uh, he did it for free almost straight away. And that monk is sitting right behind me now. The Mudita. Remember that experience? Oh, nice experience. <laughs> but the story is nice. <laughs> the story is nicer, yeah. In other words, the fellow just you know, was a Buddhist and he knew how to care for people. and said, I'm very happy to do that. And that's our insurance policy. I help others, never ask for any money back and they have the opportunity to help us. It's beautiful. I kind of like that. No money involved. Make sense? Yes. And Jen, I know it's 5.30, but we've got some questions here. Is it okay we do one, at least one question? No, at least two. At least two, okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, all right. Uh, Ajahn, the workload from my university exams exceeds my capacity. I sometimes get exhausted and discouraged. How can I better cope with this problem and reduce stress? Please advice. What is stress? It's not the amount of work you do. That's nothing to do with stress. Have a look how much work I do. I should be stressed out. Do I look stressed out? So how do I deal with that? So similarly, how heavy is the cup? A cup of tea or a cup of water now. How heavy is this? The longer I hold it, the heavier it feels. If I keep holding it after one minute, I get very tired. After two minutes, pain. After three minutes, in agony. And that's not the right thing to do. What should I do when this 
cover was starting to become heavy now. What should I do when this gets too heavy to hold comfortably? Put it down. Rest for a minute. And you try this. An experiment for yourself. After one minute, you pick it up again. It feels lighter, honestly. It's the same weight, the same mass. It feels lighter because your muscles are relaxed. And you can hold it without any problem. The same way, what is stress? It doesn't matter how much weight you're holding. You don't know how to put it down. And rest when it's time to rest. If you know how to meditate, it means you know how to rest the most efficiently. So if ever I am writing an article, answering an email or something, sometimes I feel tired. I can't get the language right. I realize I shouldn't be looking at the computer. I shouldn't be trying to write at this time. I need to meditate to relax and rest. Sometimes all you need is about 10 minutes. And then afterwards, you have a nice meditation, put it down. You go back to the computer again, and you can write some amazing stuff. Very clear, very precise, without any stress at all. You get much more work done when you've got a clear mind. So now you know why people get stressed out. You've got work to do, and you're tired, you keep forcing your mind. And you get more stressed, the mind gets more dull and confused and you don't do well. Many times, students especially, staying up late at night to finish off the assignment, that they can't even get the right words come up. You should never do that. If you feel really tired, relax, relax. And when you get back onto the computer afterwards, you go clear mind, you produce so much so well. That was basically how I advised the students at one of the high schools in Perth called Carmel School. It's a Jewish school. And the reason I went there is because I knew the, the rabbi there, Rabbi Bernstein. He was a rebel. He got this job one year to be the, the rabbi in the school. And he was sacked after that one year. And he does think about believing in reincarnation, rebirth. A really nice man because he challenges. But anyway, I got the job there to teach the kids about exam technique. And that was one of the things which I did. Told them how to relax. When you get tired, put the cup down. The day before the exam or the night before the exam, just have a good meal. Watch your favorite movie or something. But don't look at the books the night before. That just creates a stress and anxiety inside of you. And the reason I tell that story is because a few weeks later, I got a lovely uh, thank you letter from the principal of the Jewish school. Thank you so much, Ajahn Brown, for teaching our kids. It was the last year, the year 12. We came top in the whole schools of the whole West Australia. Thank you. They, they ranked the schools. It was the best school that year. And Carmel Jewish School got number one that year. So it works. Don't just make this stuff up. So, you're stressed out because you don't know how to rest. You don't know how to relax. You don't get stressed. And you really perform to the highest. Okay? Other question? Um, we have another question from the room. Yeah. Hi, Ajahn. Um, uh, you mentioned about Ajahn Chai, your teacher, and he told you that meditating is about letting go and not clinging. I mean, today is not Ajahn Chah Memorial Day, but I was curious what is the most impactful lesson that he taught you that sticks to you to this day? Most impactful. Again, this one time when he came to give a talk, I was so inspired after the talk that he came also after the talk to take a sauna, the sauna in the monastery. He was getting very sick. Another monk would look after him, so I decided to go in the back of the hall and meditate. So I meditated for two hours, pissed out, had a wonderful time. And when you come out of your meditation, you just want to help anybody. So I thought maybe I could still do some service for my teacher. So I went by myself towards the sauna, 
was way too late. He finished his sauna. He was walking back to his car, you know, with the driver. And I was on this path. We were going to cross. I couldn't have uh, not crossed paths with him. And that's when he looked at me. He started to look at me. And, okay, you know, people think I'm a crazy man, but look, I am honest. He was looking at me, and he was reading my mind. And my mind was so pure and clean at this time. I was so aware that he knew it was inside of me. And for once, I was very happy he was having a look inside of my mind. My mind had just come out of a good meditation, really free from the hindrances. It was pure. Very temporarily, but it was good. So come and have a look. I was proud of my mind, if you like. So afterwards, he looked at me and said, Brahma Wangso. That was my full name. Brahma's for sure. Brahma Wangso. Why? That encounter. And now I was just quite shocked. I was very peaceful, but I just replied, I don't know. And he just laughed. He never ever scolded you. Just laughed. And then he looked at me again and said, if anyone asks you that question again, I'll tell you the answer. He answered the question why from Ajahn personal teaching. He said the answer to the question why is there is nothing. There isn't, there is nothing. My me alive. And when he said that, I knew it was really important. He looked at me again. I'm one, so do you understand? I said yes. He said no, you don't. But <laughs> that encounter was so powerful. I just come out of a two-hour deep meditation, and then he gave me this teaching. So I always remembered it. That was the most powerful teaching of often. My me alive. There's nothing. No iPhone, no Atari, no computer, no Subiesri, no Ajahn Melinda, no Ajahn Moody Tessary. There's nothing. Do you understand? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's powerful. And I got that, and I just said, no, you get that one. Okay, you go. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm fine. Yeah. One more question. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask from Arjan, if you're rejected by your own father and brother and sister, how do you cope? Rejected by your father, um, brother, and sister. What about your mum? <laughs> mum's okay. It's amazing, first of all, that mothers very rarely reject their kids. A mother's love for the child is always greater than the father's love for the child. There was a story which was told by the Buddha. And sometimes I've never had kids, I'm not quite sure, but I can understand that the mother actually would kick up in the womb to have a relationship with you, which is stronger than your father. But anyway, there's always some people who do not regret you, who love you and care for you. Just having one person like that, one good friend, is amazing. Now, rarely do you choose your parents, you can choose your friends. And so, because of that, just don't worry about that. It's not important. But most important, never reject yourself. No matter what the whole world thinks about you, you're the only one who really knows your value. In all the world, all my 71 years and going to prisons and stuff, and seeing some prisoners have done some really cruel things to others. And I could see inside of them this. Nothing they need to reject. Inside that stupidity which caused them to do those terrible things. It's just beautiful people inside. Very kind and wonderful people. I can see that. I don't know why other people can't. 
whoever that person is, some beautiful, wonderful things society. Just because you've been rejected by three people, you'd never be rejected by a mark like me. You're a wonderful person. Thank you for asking that question. You have wonderful friends in this world who appreciate who you are. The most important person to appreciate who you are is you. Once you're at peace with yourself, then you find how other people think of you, what they look at you as, is a matter of time. You're at peace with yourself. So don't reject yourself, that's the most important. Your parents that don't know who you are, how do you do? I say that with all care. Because we always think our parents know us. Then you know some of you a lot of you. Okay, how did that one go? So alright? Okay, I don't know why family ever reject anybody. Your family, your blood. Why reject people? Makes no sense. So they can reject you, but don't you reject them? So father, brother, and sister, you can send them uh, Buddhist cards or whatever. And they say, no, don't send those to us, we're Christians. You said, yeah, but no, I can still send you them. You can do with them whatever you wish. I care about you, and I will never stop caring about you. That's wonderful thing to say. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ajahn. It's really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow work never stops. Yeah, exactly. Hope you have a good rest tonight as well. Oh, yeah. It's very inspiring. And thank you for everyone to come here today. Especially, I think most of you probably wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning today and then come here. And <laughs> 4, there you go. So, yeah, hopefully, um, other days you can have a good rest.